You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. Good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Spectral Skull Session. This is your host, Dane, and tonight I am interviewing Luther Wiesa, who has been a lifelong practitioner of glossolalia, the ancient art of speaking in tongues. He is an American businessman and the author of The Race, colon, What's Wrong with Capitalism and How to Fix It, published in 2020 and now available on Amazon.com. How are you doing tonight, Luther? Wonderful, Dane. Let me start by saying, man, uh, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to speaking to you and your audience tonight. I'm looking forward to talking to you, too. So, Luther, I wanted to have you on the show for two reasons. Uh, First, I wanted to bring somebody on who could talk about glossolalia, and you are the only person I've ever met who has actually practiced this ancient art. But I'm also to admit because, it. yeah, yeah, I'm willing to admit it. Okay, so I've probably met people who have done it, but they're not willing to admit it. Yes, go ahead. No, that's interesting. <laughs> What's the other reason? The other reason is because of your book and the conversation we had. First of all, I was very impressed by your book, specifically by the, the prescription you have for fixing our society. And also the story you told me about how you came to write the book and how you felt you were compelled to write it. And so I was hoping we could talk about that, about the, and then also the relationship then between um, your background, your religious background, and the, the book that you wrote. And you're feeling that there's something, I'll just leave it at that, the book that you wrote. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, we'll get into it for sure. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I appreciate our conversations have been wonderful uh, outside of the podcast, obviously, and uh, so yeah, I'm happy to, you know, go over some of it again, and I'm sure we'll have some new things to say and go from there. I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So, Luther, first of all, tell us about your personal background for the audience that they don't know you. Um, how did you get into glossolalia, and uh, just also tell us more about what it is. Sure. So um, I grew up in Egypt. I left when I was 13, uh, but I grew up there and my family, extended family, just about everybody I know, this is a very normal part of our lives. Um, When I was very young, I started wanting to speak in tongues. So uh, when I say very young, I mean like maybe nine, eight, somewhere in that age, because it was a you know, it was told to me that, you know, this is what people did. This is, if you really want to get close to God, this is what you would do. 
and I started really wanting that to happen to me. And uh, the biggest reason, I guess I would say, is, you know, my grandfather and my cousin, most of my family, Pentecostals in Egypt. So it's a, you know, pretty normal experience for most Pentecostals to speak in tongues, I would say. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I grew up with my dad not speaking so much, um, but he would, you know, speak a couple of words here and there of, of glossolalia. And uh, when I was 11, I went to a prayer conference and, uh, you know, that gives you a kind of an idea of my childhood <laughs> that I was going to prayer conferences. Uh, but yeah, I spent most of my summers in camps, Christian camps, uh, basically in Egypt when I was growing up until I left the U until I left for the U.S. Uh, so I went to this event and we had a wonderful uh, group leader, Subhi, who me and three other friends of mine, he spoke with us. And we decided, like, we wanted to pray and ask if we can have this. And that night, while everybody else was starting dinner, we ended up getting what we call in, in, in my circles, baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then we started speaking in tongues. And it was quite a powerful experience. You know, we, we spent probably two or three hours uh, speaking in glossolalia, speaking in tongues while everybody around us were, was having dinner. So it was quite something. And I was always the youngest. I was the youngest person in that group. Everybody else was about two years older than me or more. Uh, but I was 11. And it was literally two days after my birthday. So I remember it quite well. So yeah, 11 started doing it. And then how, how does this go about that you decide, like a group of you breaks off and decides that you want to ask the Holy Spirit for this experience? Yeah, so we were the youngest people there. I would guess I was pretty much the youngest person there. It wasn't really a, a, a children's thing. It was an adult's event. Uh, I think most people were in college in that event. Uh, so, and I was one of the youngest people. And then we had my youth counselor there with us. And I think the, the speaker for the event talked about it. And we knew all about it. You know, I, I, my dad talks about speaking in tongues all the time. <laughs> so I knew, I knew about it very well, you know, well before I needed to go to a convention to hear about it. It was just the fact that I was there with some of my best friends and we, would both, we all did it together. That was, you know, it even made it more powerful, you know, that you didn't, it didn't just happen to you. It happened to three other people that you know very well at the same time together. Uh, so it was a wonderful, you know, powerful experience. Um, and actually, you know, most of my childhood, you know, how, yeah, how we all are, you know, you, you kind of sometimes you do well and then sometimes you're, you do bad things and then you feel bad about doing bad things. So I've had this, this up and down until, until that day when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit. Then I, had to, I felt like much more compelled to, you know, walk the straight and narrow, if you will, because I have this much more intense experience now and, and I can't, you know, there's no way I'm going to be this kind of a bad kid with, with the, you know, being able to speak in tongues. So I definitely, you know, change a lot of my behaviors, at least for a couple of years, just because of that event. I can't say <laughs> indefinitely, but, but for, for a, a, quite a few years, that was a very powerful reason to behave and, and, and be, you know, the best I could be, I guess. 
So what what is that like the first time you speak in tongues? What is the experience oh. of that like? Well, the first time for me was very intense. It was very, and I suppose for a lot of people, but I mean, I was young and I, I you know, for, for, it was a very powerful idea, you know, that the Holy Spirit is in you and... Uh, uh, now it, you know, like th- there's a verse that says it's with you, but now it's going to be in you. So that was how the idea went that the Holy Spirit kind of walks with the Christian, but then it becomes inside the Christian. And when he gets baptized in the Holy Spirit, so that you become a lot, uh, you know, it's, it's inside you. So it, it was a very powerful, uh, you know, experience. A lot of people would say, and I would agree with them, it's like feeling like you're being taken up by the, the the surf or like a river where you you kind of lose the ability to control yourself like you you know you can't touch the ground and there's a very strong current and that's really how it feels but but mentally you know or spiritually is what we would say uh, so that that definitely is is the first time especially I felt that way and I feel that way pretty often you know that's kind of how you know You've really gotten into it, honestly, in terms of the experience. It's a very well-known like concept in my circles or the circles I used to be in is that you you're in the river. You know, that's a very common description that we all use uh, for for that experience. Is it you and your friends get together and you're praying? You're off by yourselves and you're praying and then you experience euphoria and a sense of the... And what? What's yeah. happening then? I mean, the, the okay. So I'll I'll go into my history as well a little bit more. So when, after that day, we actually and this is not common at all. Now this is like the first part is more. I mean, more common to people that have glossolalia speaking tongues. But beyond that, we were so far above that we would go and like from ten o'clock to four in the morning, we would be praying together. And most of the praying together would be, at least for me, would be speaking in tongues. So I became very fluent in, if you can call it fluent, but, you know, very acclimated to speaking in tongues for hours, which nobody really, as far as I knew, no one did much of, at least like not my parents or, or, you know, anybody that I saw personally except the people I was with, because we would go and do it for hours together. Um, and I, I did it by myself as well, but it's always easier to do it with other people because then they do something else and you have breaks in the middle where you can continue, where if you're just doing it by yourself, it's kind of harder. So we were talking about, oh, so we went, we, we had a couple of hours. So normally between 11 and 13, I spent, you know, six hours a week with my friends speaking in tongues. Six hours a week. So like every every week of the year or most weeks of the year. Yeah, yeah. Maybe sometimes twice a week. Uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't unusual uh, that we would just go and we would hang out. We would eat, you know, talk, whatever. But then at some point we would start praying and then we would pray in tongues and we would spend a couple of hours doing that. And it wasn't always. What's that? It's like it sounds like it's some marathon, like you're talking about six hours or more at a time, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't feel it. You don't feel. I, I didn't. I didn't used to feel. We would, we would, we would darken all the windows. We would. It was just dark. You know, we would make sure the room was dark, and we would play some music. You know, my friends had guitars and what have you, so they, they were pretty good at playing music. So they play music, and and it was. We should spend a couple of hours. You know. Uh, very similar to a lot of meditation, you know, experience, but only the difference is, and this is where we're going to get to, I guess, but it really is a lot like meditating, I think. Um, it, you know, you would come out of it feeling so different and so peaceful and, and blissful, but it's not always like a euphoric experience. Sometimes it was, basically, you would just think about what is happening and you would imagine events and that's not I mean I don't want to offend anyone so some people would imagine events some people would feel like this is really happening you know whatever you want to however you want to think about it uh, of different things you know like you are doing this thing in the spirit or you are communicating with this person or you are you know praying about this subject in the spirit so you would have all these inclinations of what's what's happening, but you don't actually say any words that are understandable. So, you know, for whatever that, that's worth, uh, there is sometimes, so what usually happens is you uh, speak in tongues for a certain amount of time and then you, you kind of pick, um, it's like a ball of yarn and you, you start finding a thread and then you find this one thread and you start talking about it verbally, like praying about a subject verbally in a normal you know thinking voice you know uh, so that's what usually happened at least to me so i would usually have a certain and this actually continued throughout my life i would usually have a certain amount of time of speaking in tongues and then you would pick up something uh, some idea and then you would have something to say you kind of connect the dots on this one idea that you didn't really see those dots before so that was very common experience for me. I did that for a lot of things, for praying, for preaching, for a lot of things. And we're going to get to it for the book. But everything, honestly, it was it kind of connected that way for me. And I, I never understood it, but it's always been that way. So can you tell us, like, what does it actually sound like when people are speaking in tongues? Oh, well, it's easy enough. Would you like me to show it to you? I mean, there's no, or hear it. Uh, it's very easy. I'd love to hear it. Uh, th there's not an issue at all. Um, okay, sure. So, Lova I'm a little weirded out right now, but it's fine. Let me see if I can relax a minute. <laughs> Okay, that's good enough. I don't know how long of a event you want, but um, yeah, it's, it's it's it sounds like you're speaking in Latin. Okay, well, do those words sound like any particular language to you? <laughs> so, well, this is a good point to to to, uh, to to go off of it. I would because I did it so long, I would change. So one minute I would talk like speak this way, and then it would sound like German, or it would sound like a diff, like a totally different you know, feel to the language, to the quote-unquote language. Uh, because I did it for so long, the more I did it, the more I would have dif distinctions. And sometimes they would kind of match 
your attitude so that when you are feeling happy, you had one language. When you were feeling angry, you had a different language. It wasn't angry like angry because of something happening, but it was anger like, you know, angry because the world is unfair, let's say. Uh, you know, so you'd had different... It almost reacted to your own emotions, at least for me, because I, I think partly because I did it so for so much more than just about most people I know. Uh, so that was a big part of it. Uh, I haven't, you know, practiced it that much for years, honestly. I, you know, a lot less than it used to be now. Uh, but it, it, it does have a feel to it. You know, in general, when it's general, yeah, I think this is pretty close to what normally happens. Uh, but I honestly don't know, you know, it just kind of whatever comes, comes. I, I, I don't, I typically have no concept of what's going to be said next or, or any plans of the words or anything like that. And that's, I think, one of the biggest things to, that you can kind of tell people that are speaking, that are really doing it versus the ones that are making it up. Because I think they, they um, pause more because I generally can feel if people are doing it legitimately or making it up no generally i mean i don't know if i'm that great but i can generally feel that way now wait yeah. can i ask you this is important so you think there's a distinction between people who are speaking in tongues for real and people who are making it up mm -hmm. um do i understand correctly though based on our previous conversations which the which the audience is not privy to um do you Mm. Do you you don't really still accept the idea though that some people are inspired by the spirit and some people are not? Do you? No, uh, no, I, I'm not necessarily thinking of it as a spiritual event anymore. I I I really hold it more to a practice of of mind meditation, something to that you know along that way. I think um, you know it, it's a very no, nobody really knows anything more than the biblical ideas, but. Beyond the biblical ideas, there is hints and, and things like that outside in that people used to do something like that in ancient Rome. And actually, I don't know if you know about the Sufis, uh, Muslim Sufis, uh, but I've actually heard they sometimes do that when they get into a trance. And uh, Kenneth McKenna was saying that he does that as well sometimes when they have a lot of DMT or mushrooms or what have you. Sometimes he gets into where he can't do anything but have glossolalia. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know, you know, that, that's a, that part I've never mentioned much. But. When Terrence and Dennis McKenna were down in South America, they did a lot of mushrooms. And um, it wasn't Terrence, but Dennis went into a period where he was speaking. And they said that mm -hmm. they didn't understand what he was saying. He was speaking what they called gibberish. I think they described it as gibberish. And mm -hmm. they were concerned about him. And uh, maybe yeah. that was glossolalia. We have a story in my family about my grandfather. Um, we grew up, he grew up very conservative. And he, ha he said that he prayed for many days to see if he can get the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. And then it happened to him. And for three days, he couldn't speak to them or do anything except speak in his room. In tongues. Wow. So, yeah, sometimes it's a very powerful experience. I, I, it boggles the mind, honestly. I, I don't know what to say about that. But, but yes, yeah. that's a very, it's like a folklore in my family about my grandfather who passed that's away cool. now. Couldn't, couldn't ask him. <laughs>
Your grandfather was a pastor, right? Yes, yes. He, is, he was quite a guy. He founded a branch of the Pentecostal church in Egypt. So beyond just a pastor, he was a founder of a denomination. Okay. So he was no joke. He wrote 123 books. So, you know, I, it's kind of a, I, I know a lot of people look at the idea of speaking in tongues as just the crazies and the, the insane people that can't put two words together. Uh, you know, they do that. And I understand that concept, you know, when you haven't been in there in, in that field. Uh, but, you know, my grandfather is quite a different, you know, he's quite a, a prolific author, you know, uh, and, and spoke six, six sermons a week uh, for, I don't even know, 50 years. So he was no slouch mentally, uh, but he spoke in tongues and, and he thought that was a wonderful thing. So they're not necessarily, you know, not, not necessarily a problem to do both, to be both. To be both... Um... Uh, speaking in tongues and an intellectual. Ah, I see. Ah, okay. Yeah, because so in That's the United I... <laughs> States, we don't really associate the Pentecostal movement with being like well-rooted in right. um, texts and, you know, the larger tradition being, but you're saying that's just not the case. So, can... at least in my family, at least in my, in my experience in Egypt. This was an educated man who was practicing glossolalia. Very educated, yes. Very eloquent and capable. Well, the Greeks, the Greeks insist that they got um, philosophy from Egypt, right? The ancient Greeks back in fifth century BC are saying, "Well, you know, all our stuff ultimately comes from Egypt." I, I know that that Rome and Alexandria for a long time were the two hubs of of learning, you know, in the Western world. It's not unusual, you know, to think of it. Uh, for, for a long time, Alexandria was a fantastic city that was, you know, all the knowledge and, and Alexandria Library, you know, as for centuries or, uh, you know, decades, that was a pretty important place, you know. So who knows, you know, I, I, it's hard. I, I don't want to toot my own horn or anything like that <laughs> or, or toot the Egyptians' horn. Uh, but, it is, you know, the point isn't to say that Egyptians in general are the smart. I'm just saying that people who can speak in tongues are not people that should just be dismissed just because they say they can do that. You know, I like you, you, you almost say, oh, you can meditate. Oh, my goodness, that's such a wonderful ability and you're so capable and what have you. Well, I, I think that at least that same modicum of respect needs to be given to people who speak some tongues. Ah, I see. So you see speaking in tongues as a kind of meditation? Yes, for sure. I, I see it as a, as a similar idea to meditation, maybe a little different, where you're not focusing on things just kind of inward or kind of emptying your brain maybe in meditations more, uh, but you're trying to kind of focus, almost like focusing your eyes on something that's distant so you can see it clearer. Um, I think that helps meditation or speaking in tongues help with that, with trying to, I think, see ourselves better. I think that's, at least for me, it's always been that way where I can kind of uh, see my own behavior and examine my own ideas better than I usually would because of, you know, our, our minds are always running, you know, it's always chasing other ideas and thinking about things. But when you're speaking in tongues, it kind of quiets most of that so that, the important things kind of flows to the top. Yeah. 
Um, you know, so this is a interesting way to put it. You know, I, it's hard to explain this stuff. I was uh, watching a, a monk actually talking about you know books and writing, and he says, you know, there's writing and you can words, you can explain a lot of things, but there is there's limits to all that where you were talking about experience because experience is one thing and your words and your you know ideas is different you know so you know they, they take everything i say with a grain of salt because obviously people are different and the way they will maybe somebody else's experience was glossolalia's different but at least my experience has been that way your experience is that when you do glossolalia you have insights into yourself Yes, for sure. I So I put it in a different uh, context once. I put it this way. It's speak. So it's let's just say that thinking normally is like a person swimming in the deep. He's just swimming in the deep. He sees all this stuff down in the ocean floor, but he can't get to it. Where speaking glossolalia is like putting on a scuba, scuba gear. And you can just somehow you get a lot farther into your subconscious and you can examine your subconscious motivation, thinking, you know, ideas better than, than things like, you know how we all have thoughts that we just kind of, they cross our mind for a split second and we never think about them again. And then we think about them sometimes, like they just come and go. And then once we talk about them or think about them, you're like, oh yeah, I was thinking about this, but I never really went anywhere, I don't know why. But it seems to me when I do glossolalia, because I quiet the conscious mind, the subconscious mind gets some breathing room that I can, some of these ideas kind of come up or you can get down to them, whatever way you want to put it, where you can examine those things better, where you don't really think about them at all, otherwise. Okay, so you're, you're not actively thinking about them, but you're, you're just practicing the glossolalia and then what do you have just these thoughts about these things just come out yeah different things come up as you practice glossolalia different ideas come to mind they just they just you're not trying like you you're not sitting there and trying to think about this specific subject but at one point you start thinking about one subject and it takes you to a different emotion and then 10 minutes later, if you can continue it, which I don't think many people can for 20 minutes or an hour, I think that's a very rare thing. But if you can continue it, then you kind of end up going to a different stream. You can almost, you know, like I was telling you earlier with the languages and the stream, you kind of go to a different stream of, of speaking and thinking about something else. And you don't necessarily have any, you know, I don't ever, hardly ever have any intention. Sometimes you have an intention when you speak in tongues, but most times you're just speaking in tongues and then you, your intentions come to you as you get into it. Okay. You're just kind of riding with the current. Exactly. Yep. Back to the current that it's just something you just, you go with the river, just let the river and you just kind of go and see where it goes. See where it takes you. Oh, interesting. So where does the practice come from? Can you tell us why it is that we associate speaking in tongues with Christianity? Sure. So that's a very easy conversation that I heard many times. And I'll give you just a quick four verses, just mostly in Acts, two in Acts and two First Corinthians. 
Um, so obviously the very beginning was, was when everybody was um, after Jesus was resurrected in the Bible and, and uh, rose to heaven. He said, you know, stay in Jerusalem and you shall be filled with power with the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens to the disciples and Pentecostal. That's the name. That's why we're called Pentecostals is the, you know, the day that the Holy Spirit came down and all the apostles started speaking in tongues in Jerusalem. And that's found in Acts 2.4. And then you find a little later in Acts 19.6 that Paul as well was speaking in tongues and he put his hands on someone and it says that they started speaking in tongues like we were. So, you know, it, it became a constant practice. It wasn't just a one-time event that Paul was able to do it and put his hands on other people who end up doing it. And then the other two that I actually like very much is one, he says... And this is one of my favorite because it's kind of just, it's kind of how I think about speaking in tongues now. Uh, Paul was speaking to the Corinthians and he says to them, don't you know that speaking, that he who speaks in, tongue, in an unknown tongue edifies himself. In another vi version, it would say build this, you, build your, you build yourself. So it was always meant as a, something you're doing for yourself when you spoke in tongues. And then the last one that I really like is Paul telling all of them, he says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. Uh, and that's, that's in uh, 1 Corinthians 4.18. So it was a practice that obviously Paul did and, you know, didn't think much of it. And, you know, for some people think Paul is, is almost as much as, as Jesus in terms of building the, the you know, the Christianity in some people feel like he was more of an impact on Christianity than even Jesus because he wrote so much of the New Testament and, uh, you know, he preached the gospel to Rome and what have you. So, uh, you know, so whatever. The point is he was someone who spoke in tongues a lot and believed in it. Uh, so a lot of Christians, at least the Pentecostals for sure, take these verses and many more and they kind of, they definitely hold those as an example for all Christians. There's a lot of debates and, you know, I'm not going to get into all the nitty gritty of Christian debates about speaking in tongues, you know. Christianity is divided into, uh, who knows, at this point, a hundred different denominations at least. So we all have our views on, on all, this, all these things, but these are at least clear practices of people having done that in the early church. Ah, okay. So can I ask you a weird question? Anytime, like, like, like this whole conversation hasn't been weird for most people, but go ahead. Well, I mean, so, so you don't really like emphasize the possible spiritual dimension of glossolalia right now. You think it's, you think of it in terms of a meditative practice, right? Yes. So I, I, yes, I oscillate, you know, I'll be honest. Some days I'm one thing and some months I'm one thing and some months I'm another. But for the most part, I, uh, you know, when I was writing a book, I was quite a bit more strict re religious. So I was more back there in that mindset. But now that I'm a little far away from the book, I'm a little less dogmatic. Let's put it that way. Uh, but I feel like it's definitely, and it's just, this is actually part of my own experience again, because I spent many years not speaking in tongues at all or not coming back to that. And then one day I was sitting there and I had a long, I watched a long TED talk about neurogenesis and 
meditation being very helpful to people's brains and to traumatic kids when they have trauma. Meditation actually helps heal the brain. Long story short, I decided to start meditating. And that day I, I sat down and was meditating for a little while. Lo and behold, I started speaking in tongues. It wasn't even on my, like it was completely the last thing I was thinking about. You know, I, I, I haven't done it for probably two or three years. And I'm sitting there and, and this thing comes up and I'm just like, what is happening? Like I was just meditating, you know, like just listening to a scientific, uh, you know, doctor about of neuro of neurology talking about meditation. And now I'm speaking in tongues. So I'm like, okay, there's gotta be something going on here. And that's what started me, you know, coming back to the practice and being curious about it because it seemed to really have a connection. And that was actually about a year before I wrote the book. So that's kind of segues into, into writing the book because I was slowly introducing that into my life, or reintroducing that into my life. Okay, so you're saying that this gives us a way to transition to the book. You, uh, yes, somewhat. You had sort of moved away from your Christian background. Is that's correct, right? Yeah, yeah. I I would say I was pretty much agnostic, if not an atheist. So okay, for, when did, for quite a for a few years, basically. When did that start? Oh, um, that's hard to put a finger on it, but it's uh, somewhere in 2013. Okay, and so you'd stopped practicing the glossolalia around that time. Yeah, yeah, I would say 2014, pretty much, I haven't had done it really at all. Okay, and what moved you away from from your Christian heritage? Or no worries. It was a slow digression, you know, I started not going to churches often and slowly kind of as I, I've done a, a ridiculous amount of searching and, and, and looking into this, this Christianity and religion in general and atheism and what have you. I mean, there is no answer for me. At least I haven't found an answer, to be honest yet. But, you know, it really was very difficult to balance the two. And I just, I haven't done, I didn't do anything in my life. So I started kind of experimenting, to be honest, and uh, moving out of my Christian, you know, my very serious Christian heritage into kind of other things. And uh, you know, part of it was definitely a, a you know, my, my big event in life was with uh, 13 years ago, I had a divorce. So that started me on the thinking of, you know, thinking about these subjects, I guess, um, more because you were so sure in life about everything. And then slowly you're like, okay, maybe I'm not as sure as I, you know, maybe I shouldn't be as sure about this stuff as I think. Yeah. When was that? Uh, the divorce was like 2009. Yeah, it's 2009. So it was a slow kind of moving situation. And then I moved away from family and didn't really have to keep up with, you know, the of going to church with them. And, you know, so that that slowly kind of digressed. <laughs> so for better or worse, that slowly happened where I moved far away. And then it was just like, okay, you know, if I'm going, I'm going for me. And I still went, to be honest with you, I went, you know, for a, a good year um, after I moved away, but it was less, it was less fervent, that's for sure. And it was kind of, yeah. Okay. And then when did you start to get back into glossolalia? Right, that's very recent. That's really very recent. Um, 
probably just just around uh, the beginning of 2020 or 20 right around maybe like 28 20, middle of 2019 yeah middle of 2019 I think is when I started like getting back into it I would do it here and there like for 10 minutes you know in a month or something or in six months but it was like non-existent you know but I really started getting into it a lot right around the COVID. I did a lot of that. And I did a lot of meditation and I did a lot of just together. You know, I would I would meditate. I would listen to some music. I would speak in tongues. Um, and it was just kind of like it, it lost a lot of the religiousness that it used to have. Uh, but I still enjoyed it. Like it was it was a wonderful experience and I enjoyed it. And it made me feel better in some sense. And it made me examine myself more in another sense. So there was both sides to it. So you, you felt like you needed to, not sure if the examining myself part was just kind of my old, you know, normative behavior with it, which is what I always did. You know, in prayer, you examine yourself and that's why that came back or it's just part of it. I'm not sure. But I always felt better with it, um, you know. So I always think there is a connection between speaking in tongues and DMT in the brain. I'm, that's just something I, who knows, there's not been anything scientific about it. This is just kind of my own idea. But I feel like there is some connection there. I had an argument once with a friend about, is it better to... In, in intake DMT or have a way to generate your own DMT. And I'm like, well, I think it's better to have your own generator. And I think that generator is speaking in tongues or glossolalia. Ah, well, that's really interesting. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I have all sorts of weird things that I'm not sure anybody else thinks, no. think of, thinks about. But... <laughs> Luther, we talked about this on my pod on the podcast the first season. We did an episode on DMT, and one of the thoughts that came out of that episode for me was the the possibility, not the conclusion, mind you, the possibility that um, when the reason why people have the same kinds of experiences across the world, across ah. cultures, when they do DMT, could be because. Right. The people who engineered us, whoever they are, whether they are gods or god or aliens, they might have built a back door into our consciousness, right? And the DMT accesses that, right? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah. For you to say that glossolalia yeah. might be a way to access your innate DMT, maybe there's a superior, right, value in in doing it innately, right? Is maybe. Maybe you're tapping into something, right, that the creator put into us. Yeah, I, 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 I have always thought about that. Like I have a whole thing that, that I, I put on YouTube, actually, and because of speaking in tongues. And, I, and that's how I thought for a minute there because it, I felt connected to everyone else, you know. And that's what everybody says in DMT, you know. Everybody says it's all, we're all connected, you know. And that's always been, you know, and maybe that's part of why I feel like I'm always been in, in a connected mood with people is I've, I've done that for so long and it's a big part of my life and I'm, obviously I've done it since I was 11 so it's a very early part you know there's not many people doing DMT at 11 but I was speaking in tongues plenty at 11 
which maybe it was <laughs> maybe it was the same, you know, <laughs> for better or worse. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, I agree with you. I, it's a it's a very curious idea, you know. It, it honestly, I'll tell you this, and this is something I've never really said out loud much, but um, in my Christian, you know. Uh, I don't know, wandering of, of whether or not Christianity was true or not, one of the biggest hurdles to me saying Christianity isn't true was always saying, well, what is, what is this thing that you do for hours or that you used to do for hours, uh, you know, if you're saying Christianity isn't true, like what, what the heck have you been doing? You know, because you're not doing this. Like you, you know that this is not something you're making up. So what is it? You know, if you're going to say Christianity isn't true, what? and that was one of the biggest things that I couldn't wrap my mind around. Like, I don't know. Like, I feel like I, I don't, you know, and this seemed to anchor me into Christianity more because, and then I started realizing more people did it outside of Christianity, which was a big, big uh, revelation for me. Not to the same extent that Christians did it, but at least, you know, hints of it in other culture and other religions. Uh, so that started really opening my mind to being like, wow, this is maybe something that we all, like you said, you know, something that's inherited from the creator, whoever he, she, them could be. <laughs> so, or it's just an inherent, you know, human, human, uh, you know, development, who knows, uh, something that, that we, uh, you know, kind of evolved to do or, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It, it makes sense that it's something because it's so weird that it makes sense that it would be something that didn't like, I mean, what, what would be the, what would be the uh, evolutionary benefit to something like this? I can't imagine, <laughs> you know, I don't know what, how I could put speaking in tongues in evolutionary terms, you know, so it, it kind of does make it very weird, but who knows, maybe some scientists it, will have some connection. <laughs> in terms of evolution, the only thing I could relate it to is, um, songbirds because uh -huh. um i mean songbirds produce these elaborate complex right highly organized um musical productions right but they're not semantically meaningful in that they don't to the best of our knowledge right the birds aren't talking about anything in particular they're just like but um you know, I mean, there it's, we think it serves a mating function, right? It's a right. signal. The complexity right. of the song is a signal of your fitness as a mate. Uh-huh. So, um, I mean, some evolutionary guy could make the case that maybe, maybe there's something uh, in our evolutionary history, right? We evolved to produce these songs, right? These like quasi-verbal yeah, you know, maybe emissions I, I mean, that are supposed to show our fitness. Yeah, no, it's a, you make a good point. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe it had to do something with mating as as primates or some crazy thing like that. I, you know, sometimes I do feel like you 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 know you wanna. We have some people, and I, I'm not a very good good one for that. But I have had people where they would actually sing in tongues, not just speak in oh, tongues, wow. but they would have a song that they would feel like that's something that they want to express in tongues. And it would, it would be very beautiful. Honestly, the ones I've heard were amazing. So, uh, yeah, there's all sorts of things out there that are just mind, mind boggling. <laughs> I mean, the biggest problem with that hypothesis for me, this mm -hmm. like, this like reductionist Freudian 
evolutionary, like this is where glossolalia comes from. It's like an old remnant of some kind of mm-hmm. um, like signaling function for mating. Would be, yeah. um, first of all, it's not very attractive, right? Like women don't find glossolalia yeah. appealing. Right. And then, um, <laughs> but, but, but here's my question for you. Um, uh-huh. What do you think about hip hop? And the way, like, some rappers, like, there's a kind of spontaneity to rapping and hip-hop. Do you think there's any continuity between that and glossolalia? Yeah, I don't know enough about hip-hop, but it probably okay. has something to do with, you know, building these connections in the brain that are just become these, you know, like us people who don't practice when they're young. And I think that partly is too, in Christianity, a lot of people have, are able to speak in tongues. The, the younger you are, the easier it seems to come to you and the more you can do it. That seems to be a, ah. a, 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 like a normal function. So that also makes me think it has to do with the brain and neurogenesis and kind of the connection between that because you make connections a lot easier when you're nine versus when you're you know 50. So, and I think that's part of it is, is the people who speak in tongues later in life tend to speak less to basically have less of a vocabulary if that makes any sense oh wow um, interesting you're saying okay so, so people who get into it later in life they're they're you can tell their glossolalia is more stilted and less fluent they say a lot of the same things more often yes oh I, wow i feel very rude saying that but it is kind of true uh so yes that does happen and i've noticed it in people uh where I don't notice myself repeating as much as a lot of the people who speak in tongues when they're older. They seem to repeat more. So I don't know. So take that with a... (laughs) And of course, it's practice. You know, the two things that usually that I've noticed that impact the vocabulary of people who speak in tongue or speak in tongue is the practice, the amount you do it and the age at which you start it. Uh, most things almost are, fall under those same two categories, but you know the fact that speaking in tongues falls under that category is kind of telling uh, that it has to do something with the brain. Because I think that that I mean maybe there are people out there who really have blown up on speaking. I have not seen. I'll be honest. I you know it's not like my experience is all of them, but from what I've seen, most people who start later in life usually have less of a vocabulary. That's really interesting. Yeah, if you wanted to practice glossolalia, how would you start to do that? How would you try to get... Yeah, so, yeah, that's a very good one. And, and that's a great, great place. Actually, That's a very good question. So usually it has, it's very similar, I think, to being in meditation, where you try to not have thoughts and kind of hear that small, still voice. So sometimes... It kind of, a lot of people, I think, in the beginning, you can maybe even start by thinking about random words and just kind of think if there is anything, like you're not trying to think of random words, but just kind of empty your mind and see if any random words come into your brain. So basically, first of all, see if anything is going to come. Do I have, like, I I don't want to think about anything. I don't want to think about my past. And this is a part of it as well, where you have to be present. You really have to just be present present in the moment and kind of let go of all the tension that, that we have in our brains. And slowly you start feeling that tug of, I want to say something. 
I don't want to say something in English. I don't want to say something in any other language, in any language I know. I just want to, I almost just want to babble. And it starts that way. And then it, you feel, like I said, you just get, you get to, to, into that, into that current and then it just goes. And then you're not sitting there thinking about the next word or the next thing you're going to say, but it just goes, it takes you with it. And then you, then after you do that for about 10 minutes, then the, the concept of you getting, you, you have some feedback from your body or your brain about different ideas that you want to examine or different emotions or what have you, they start coming in. Uh, but generally in the beginning, is especially, it's a very forceful, well, let's not put it that way. It, could, it doesn't have to be forceful. Uh, it's just kind of, uh, you don't have a lot of other things going on because these are, you, it's like, you can think of it as toddlers walking, you know, the more you do it, the, the easier it comes to you and the easier you can do it and what have you. But when you're first starting to walk, you know, you can just have two sentences and you're done. And, and that's what happens with a lot of people, you know, in the beginning, especially you just have two sentences and you're done and you don't, you can repeat that two sentences a couple of times or, you know. So obviously with Christians, this comes with a ridiculous amount of, um, you know, um, fervor, let's put it that way. Because, you, you, you know, the, the belief and, and the reaction is you're getting filled with the Holy Spirit and, you know, God is filling you now. So you're very, uh, you're, you're, you're um, highly spiritual, high, very fervent, and usually you're praying with other people around you. So it's a very different atmosphere. Uh, but if you're just by yourself or you're just with somebody else, and I think, honestly, and I'm not sure how this helps, but I think it does, people around you speaking in tongues is usually very helpful when you're first trying to do it. Because it kind of gives you that, you know how we are, you know, everybody else is doing it, might as well do it too, you know, everybody's doing it and your parents won't care, you know, so you, you kind of get into that, into that mood where it's, it's happening, you know, oh, okay, you know, it's not so weird because what happens with us is we have this judgmental idea, you know, even when I did it for your podcast, it started coming, which doesn't happen to me very often, but. Obviously, for a podcast, it did. It's like people think you're dumb, you're crazy, what the hell are you doing? You know, the, these kind of thoughts come up. So, and that's actually what started tripping me up, is that happening? So, you know, when I'm doing it by myself, I don't have those thoughts because I don't really, you know, I've been doing it for years. But then when you're by yourself, you know, as someone who's never done it, you still have these thoughts because you're judging yourself. You're not worried about other people judging you because you're by yourself, but you're still judging yourself, thinking you're crazy, you're stupid for doing this, what have you. So, and these, quieting these, these, um, you know, condemnation is, I think, one of the hardest thing to do. And to just get past those things into getting into that flow. I think that's, for most people, by far, I think that is the biggest hindrance. And, you know, I'm sure people are going to still think I'm, you know, being crazy for saying what I'm saying, but that's just, you know, uh, I'd, I'd love to have more conversation. If people have any more uh, objections or anything that they want to say about it, I'm happy to, to, to speak to that more. But uh, as a general, you know, rule of, of starting, I think that's a pretty good way to. It sounds like you're saying the most important thing is to switch your ego off. Yeah, isn't that, you know, pretty often the, the biggest thing. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Yeah, you're right. E ego, you know, the ego death is a very common spiritual practice, you know, and again, we go back to the meditation. Thing. I think that's a very common thing for meditators to try to, you know, turn off the ego. So, I, I, yes, I absolutely agree with you. That's a good, succinct way to say it. That's cool. Yeah, because maybe turning off your ego is the um, is the requisite for the other good things that come from it, right? You said these insights into yourself. And then for you, um, it was practicing glossolalia that led you to feel like you needed to write this book. Is that correct? Yeah, it was in the middle of speaking in tongues that I just kind of half the book came together for me. So, yeah. Yeah, so I, you know, uh, I grew up very, very serious about fairness and very averse to harming people, you know, with, with and this is, I, I go over this in the book, and, you know, the concept of love your neighbor as yourself is very important to me. It's always been important to me. It's still important to me, even if I, you know, even if I say I'm a Christian, even if I say I'm not a Christian, this is a very, I think that is the way to live. And um, a side note from that, Yuval Harari has mentioned in his 21st century for the, or 21st lessons for the 21st century, the same idea. He kind of alludes to that concept. He says Confucius mentioned it. A lot of different people mention it. And they, they mention specifically love your neighbor as yourself. If they don't, they say do unto others as they would have them do unto you. You know, we had this argument once where I feel like love your neighbor as yourself is kind of a step up from do unto others as you do, as you would have them do unto you. Regardless, uh, it's the same point, I think. So a lot of people, regardless of their spiritual background or religious uh, views, have summarized morality into that statement. And in my speaking in tongues, that really became just one of those things that, that, that I, I would, I'm always focused on it, but it just blew up in, in my mind and, in, and, it, and it gave me a way to say, okay, if I look at this, if I, if I look at all that's happening around us in, in a Christian worldview and I connect the dots, this is the image I see. This is what I would change about this world. And then I sat down and I said, okay, let's look. If I look at the world with a completely atheist point of view and I connect the dots, lo and behold, I can find the same image um, so that I don't care what your beliefs are. I can reach you and say, okay, if, if you're a Christian, let's sit down as Christians together and you will agree with every point I make. And then we'll have this, this image in the end that just blows your mind. And it's the same thing if you're an atheist. And I thought, okay, well, if you can say something as a Christian or an atheist, this is the closest thing to moral truth and philosophical, philosophical truth I can get to. I don't know how, I mean, truth is truth. So when you can see it from both angles, from that far of a difference in worldview, and you can come to the same conclusion, that's got to be true. And that's really all that happened while I was pretty much speaking in tongues. Most, most of that, that connections, uh, you know, obviously the book comes and, and there's a lot more research and a lot more, but a lot of the foundation and the, the last chapters were in that, in that minute 
uh, you know, of, of insight. Uh, you know, I, you know, we, we, we have this, uh, we have this thing and it kind of reminds me of it a lot. Uh, when, you, when I used to be a pastor and I would preach, we would say, you know, I was praying in tongues typically and this sermon was downloaded. You know, this sermon was downloaded to me. And that was almost the same. It was very much the same feeling. You know, it was just this only instead of just using the Bible, I would use whatever books I could find, you know, and, I, and whatever books I read in, in, uh, in the last whatever couple of years that I put all these points together. And, and this all happened within that split second. And I think that's and that's really why I think a lot of people need to speak more in tongues, because I don't know what people will make connections of. I think people will make amazing connections the more they practice this thing, because I believe I don't believe that I'm all that special. I really don't. And I feel like that practice more than me being special is what made me write this book. And, you know, the fervency maybe was from my spiritual from my Christian background. Uh, but in general, the, the, the ability to make all these connections, I think, is is solely almost solely. Uh, a product of speaking in tongues. You know, I had all this information coming in, but it's not like I've made any sense of it. And speaking in tongues kind of directed me to make sense of it. So I've read somewhere that the subconscious notice notices like 4 million different uh, pieces of information a minute or some, some ridiculous number. I mean, ridiculous number. And the thing is uh, that the conscious can't, can't, keep track of that. The conscious could like keep track of 70 maybe. So the difference is outrageous. Seven. I'm sorry? Yeah. I've heard it's actually um, seven plus or minus two. Oh, wow. We can only okay. keep track of like seven data points plus or minus two depending on, you know, how gifted we are. Right. Okay. Well, that's okay. Even more of a ridiculous difference. So, you know, and, and that's what I think. I think what I was doing with speaking in tongues is connecting more to the subconscious. The thing that can make sense of 50 different books plus the Bible. Uh, you know, which is something like, wow, you know, how are you going to connect all these things that are completely desperate by people who don't believe at all the same things? And somehow through all this, you know, ridiculous amount of information comes a book that says, OK, well, I can you know, connect this and this and this and this and this and I can come up with this idea. Uh, and again, I don't think I'm, I'm special. I think it's I think the biggest part was that I was speaking in tongues so much that I can make. Uh, connections that most people just don't make because we are uh, in, in many different ways. We're, you know, we're boxed in by our own thinking. We're boxed in by our own tribes. We're boxed in by our own, you know, views and, you know, our own history and our own, you know, memory. So there's so many things that box us into different avenues of, uh, of thinking that we don't know how to get out of it. And I think, again, you know, the, the glossolalia helps me get out of that and connects dots that I've never would have connected otherwise. So. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, we I don't think to, of, yeah. We don't think of meditation as doing that. It's not supposed to serve that function. So you hear about people talking about meditation. They don't talk about it as helping you synthesize disparate sources of information. They're describing something right. unique. So that's why I think it's, 
Right. The flip side of meditation maybe is a good way. I don't know, honestly. A meditation seems to be a, a thing. It seems to be good for a person's like emotional self uh, more, maybe, um, where, where the glossolalia is more geared toward... I think it does help me with that, my emotions as well, honestly, but... But I think it is more geared toward the mental life. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's kind of getting out there in terms of, of what I can say, uh, you know. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> say. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate I appreciate your intellectual humility. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, all this stuff is is really, I think cutting edge in terms of thinking and, and uh, you know, scientifically, nobody has really done anything. The only person I've ever seen, I've, uh, I've really tried to find if anyone has anything decent about the subject, I'd love to hear it. But the two things that I've ever heard, there was an ABC thing where they did an MRI with people who are speaking in tongues. And they said, well, it's not, it's not the same place that, that we use for verbal communication, like language. Uh, so we don't know, like it's not a normal place, so they're not actually understanding. So we, we believe that, yeah, like they said, they don't understand what they're saying. And yeah, it, the, the proof is when we talk, this part lights up when we actually know what we're saying. And when they're speaking in tongues, this other part is lighting up. So we don't know what this part does, but that's what lights up when people speak in tongues. Uh, that and Clarence McKenna stuff, those are the only two things outside of Christianity that I've ever seen about the subject. So I'd love to, you know, get into it more. I've tried actually to contact some some uh, uh, neurologist and some scientist about it, but I never was able to get anywhere with that. So, but I'd be happy to, to be involved in any, uh, you know, I, I uh, <laughs> give my consent if anyone likes to have any experiments, I am happy to do anything. I would love sure. to know more about it, personally. You're right-handed, <laughs> so, right? Okay, good. Yes. Left-handed people often get kicked out of experiments automatically. Yeah, because oh, you yeah. have normal okay. brain, well, no, I'm abnormal good. brain I'm structures. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you, yeah, my my brother is so my brother is is uh, to, as a side note, he is left-handed and he also speaks in tongues. He was part of that group that I always oh. was hanging out with and speaking with. Um, and he's have a similar experience because he pretty much stopped as well. So who knows? But I, it doesn't matter if you're left-handed or right-handed. You can do Glad it. Glad to hear that because I'm left-handed. <laughs> yep. So <laughs> Well, there you go. Don't I let will. it stop you. I think I've spoken in tongues before now that you've described it. Oh, okay. I think right. I've had an experience like that. Yeah, myself. So well, not, not a lot. Tell. Now I'm I think very I, curious. Unless you I don't just, want to. I've gone through periods <laughs> where I felt like I was I was saying things, but um, they weren't meaningful. I was making utterances and I felt like it was an emotional outpouring. Yeah. And I, um, there you go. The, yeah. They I were loosely structured. A lot of us. And we just kind of uh, say it again. They were loosely structured, but they just it just didn't, you know, it wasn't it didn't refer to anything. It wasn't meaningful well-formed right you know assertions within a particular language yeah and i think when people when that happens to people they just kind of dismiss it as being ridiculous or just a minute thing and and they don't they don't continue with it and maybe that's what happens with you know the differences uh because you don't if you don't 
continue to do something, it kind of dies by itself for most people. So that might be part of it. But I think that, you know, you proved my point. I don't know if you were looking for that or, or even thinking about speaking in tongues at all when you did it. Uh, but I think a lot of people have similar experiences. They just choose to ignore them when they happen. Uh, yeah. I had a friend who said, said something similar to me. So I've seen so much about that. Like we, for example, we don't like to talk about hearing voices. It's quite mm. common for people to hear voices. But in Western society, we don't want to talk about it because if you hear voices, right, you're crazy. Right, right. Only right. crazy people. But actually, <laughs> lots of people here, almost everybody's going to hear a voice at some point in their life. Right. right? Yeah, I would it's agree. It's just all a matter of how you interpret that voice. Yeah, yeah. And, and what it tells you to do, I suppose. <laughs> but I, yeah. I think if you're, if you're correctly aligned, usually that voice doesn't do anything crazy. You know, it's like it's, it's with you. It's helping you out. It's usually... You know, but if you're, you know, misaligned in how you think about how to get what you want in life or, you know, the, the way your mental life sometimes is really morality, we're, we're sometimes really screwed up more morally so that we think like the only way we can get ahead is by harming other people, which ends up being really messy. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the crazy voices come in, where people become more, you know, they, they kind of degrade as they go you know it gets worse and worse because the voices are telling them to do crazier and worse things uh you know, as they go along you know instead of helping people or, or solving a problem they're creating problems and they're harming people uh so yeah. and it's just kind of how i think you know their mental life is just kind of you know well how about speaking of your own ideas how about your book i mean so you're saying that the glossolalia Gave like it re it did it reignite your conscience and your sense that there is something going horribly wrong with our civilization that you needed to write about. Um, so as you acclimate with these books, and I seem to do that more than most, I mirror the things I hear until I decide I want them or not. So there's a bit of time where I associate strongly with the things I hear, unless I'm clearly against them. For the most part, I try to take this information in as, as, a, as a neutral observer as I can, so that I am not against it right away and I'm not for it right away. But anyway, so I was reading these books on economics and I've been, it's been a part of my life for a long time. Uh, you know, I, I think I mentioned it in the book, when I first came to the U.S., I heard, uh, you know, the statement, you know, do the things for you, do the best for you, and it'll be the best for everyone. And as a child, like I was saying to you earlier, you know, you have these ideas and then you lose them. Because I remember thinking that, that that second, that can't be true. But, you know, you, you're a child. You just kind of ignore that concept and you move on. And the... Um, that day when I was speaking in tongues, that came back up, that whole concept and, you know, a simplification of how we all function, uh, of basically not being able to do either. You can't do the best for yourself without harming other people, and you can't do the best for others without harming yourself, and financially specifically, so that... <laughs> Okay, and the idea here, just to be clear, this is the um, the idea that's kind of, it's a core libertarian 
idea that uh, it's like found in Adam Smith that the way uh, to generate the most value for society is just to be maximally selfish. And if right. you're selfish, but you obey the rules and everybody obeys the rules and everybody's being selfish, the outcome will be the best for everyone. This is an Adam Smithian kind of idea. For sure, yes. And I never okay, and so I never felt good about it. And it's proven okay. more and more wrong, at least in the sense that you just mentioned one thing that nobody does. Everybody obeys the rules. Nobody obeys the rules. Hmm. People obey the rules as far as... Because you can't be selfish and obey the rules at the same time. They're actually ah, contradictory. Yes. Good. So... Good. Yeah, if I'm selfish, I will not obey the rule. I will do the best for me, which is not obeying the rule. It's skirting the rule as best as I can. It's hiding the fact that I'm disobeying the rule as best as I can. That's one thing. That's, but it's not actually obeying the rule. It's, you know, and that, that's everywhere. That's, that's how, you know, that's why everybody's avoiding taxes. The rules is paying taxes. Nobody wants to pay taxes. Nobody. So, and they avoid it as best as can, as they can. So the concept, and, and I think the idea is if they pay taxes, then it would be pretty good. Like if they pay the right amount of taxes, then, then it would be just fine because then you're getting back enough to do good in the community and what have you. And if it's a free market and a good free market, then it's going to all be good. But these are all just kind of they're not real concepts. They're just socially accepted ideas, but they don't actually exist. Because if you, if you can just say socially to somebody, to, to a monkey in the desert or a monkey in the jungle, do the best for you and it will be the best for everyone, that monkey is going to go around stealing, killing, raping. The best for me. End of story. And that's what alphas do in, in some harems and what have you. They think that's the best for them. The, the consequences it's, is the only thing that stops them from misbehaving. So if the consequences is what stops you from misbehaving, the statement can't be naturally true. It's socially true. It's the consequences that stops you. But it, it's not truth in, in itself. So, so that's where I started is to say, okay, let's at least make the statement true by not doing anything, by say, by just flipping it, saying, do the best for others, and it will be the best for you, or do good for others. Let's name, the, the word best doesn't work regardless, whether it's for you or others, doesn't work. So you should just say, okay, do good for you, or do good for others, and it will be good for you. Because if you're creating Microsoft, you're gonna be a billionaire. If you have a business that provides a service, you're gonna make money out of it. So that at least, you take the selfishness out of it because we're already selfish. You do not need to help us become more selfish by telling us, hey, be selfish. So that's where I started. That really is my hatred of this concept of selfishness, of selfishness. You know, uh, um, Richard Dawkins wrote this book, The Selfish Gene, just that, it, as if that is a good, it's a good in the world now for all of us to just run around being selfish. It's, it shocks me. We're flipping all of morality and all of our history just because we're spiteful of religion, I think. I don't know why, honestly, but I think it's, that's what's going on. People are spiteful of religion, so they literally want to flip everything and say, oh, yeah, no, so religion said to uh, love others and care about others more than yourself. No, no, well, no. The only thing that's I, good is to care about yourself. 
I actually thought it came out of, I thought this whole libertarian tradition comes out of things like the Scottish Enlightenment, Adam Smith saying, look, if everybody is left to their own devices, we generate incredible wealth, everybody's better off. And then we sort of did that in the 20th century to some extent, and we did generate incredible wealth in the 20th century, right? Um, the world got better. I I um, I agree with creating value. I understand that, but that value that you create in no way gets distributed evenly, even with taxes, because as we have all seen for the last. 70 years, the amount of taxes, the top 10% in the US has gone down, maybe even more than longer than 70 years. So because they are in power, uh, instead of an individual, let's just say a group, the rich, uh, they slowly do exactly what your statement says of doing what's best for you. We're doing what's best for the rich of America. And what's best for the rich of America is to pay less taxes. And as you do that, you harm everybody else in America. It's just that simple. Uh, so, and as you realize that, you realize, okay, it, the concept, when the concept is wrong, then we need to recognize, just admit, that's the first step. You know how they say the first step to, to getting better is to admit you have a problem? The first thing to improving economics is to say you have a problem. What is your problem? The very freaking foundation is wrong. Because you can't say that. If you can't say it verbally, then you shouldn't teach it. Because all that's happening is you, as I said a million times in the book, you're reaping what you sow. You're teaching people a wrong way of looking at the world and looking at themselves and, um, you know, kind of behaving. And then you're surprised that they're behaving wrong and that, that the system is not that great. Well, you're the one that taught them to do it this way. Why are you surprised when you're, when you're putting your input is, is exactly equal to your output, but you refuse to say that, but that's all that's happening. So where I come at it is I vehemently for 20 years without realizing it, I actually honestly remember one time my mom used to say, what, what are you doing? Why are you reading and, and listening to books all the time? Like what? And I couldn't even answer. And I think, you know, uh, Jordan Peters actually mentioned that once. He said, sometimes you're, you're looking for an answer and you don't know what the question is. And I think that's what I was doing for a long time. And, you know, and then I realized that was the question because of that statement that I heard when I was a child of doing what's best for yourself. And it would just be hunky dory for everyone. I think the reason, and I think a lot of people are coming around to that idea, I, uh, you know, and I, Obviously, you know, I didn't even realize when I wrote all this, I didn't realize the communist and, you know, a lot of people, that's what they used to say. They used to say no, no inheritance is the answer, you know, but the way they, they you know, they, they went about doing it, obviously, I don't agree with. But that was their, you know, their concept is the problem. Here is the problem. They saw the problem more or less, but their answer was atrocious which ended up making making things worse, not better, which is not surprising in the history of humans. You know, we don't often know how to do it better. You know, it's not like better behaving better. is just this thing that we do. It's, it's a very rare thing. Uh, so, you know, we, we 
this balance, you know, I, I would listen. And this is maybe another part of me is I listen to everybody. I would listen to the Christian critics of the communists and uh, the Marxists. And I would listen to the Marxists. And, uh, you know, I would listen to the people who are in the middle. And I would, I would just listen to everybody. I didn't like I didn't have a, a, a dog in the race. You know, I was just kind of like, OK, let's see what everybody's talking about. And that's kind of, you know, back to the being this neutral person in the middle you are more welcoming of everybody's ideas and concepts. And I think that maybe is, is a big part of what helped me because I had, I felt that it was, it, it's absolutely necessary to keep private property. So the question becomes, how do you keep private property and not have anybody inherit anything? Seems, it seems on the surface, you know, that they're opposed to each other. Yeah, I mean, why don't you tell us in a nutshell, I and mean, what's the solution you have in the book to the, the problem of capitalism, right? What, first of all, what's the problem of capitalism in a nutshell? Doing the best for you will never be what's best for others. So every intersection. Okay, do right, and so, so that's every interaction will have a winner and a loser. That's it. There's no way out of it. Okay, and the you you see the like the problem we have today is that. Um, there's such a gap between the rich and the poor, right? Completely uh, uneven field. It's a, it's a joke to, to ask people to compete this way is a joke, especially in the U.S. and then even worse globally. Uh, it's it's a complete disaster. Uh, but we think it's it's going great. But every statistic is you know it's com it's clearly not going great. And if you talk to people outside the U.S. Like I have family in Egypt, uh, it's it's outrageous. I was just talking and uh, thinking about a friend of mine, uh, family member actually, who is almost he he is basically the CEO of a company. He is he's the general manager of one of the biggest printing companies in Egypt, and he works right under the boss, and he makes as pretty much a top person. He makes six hundred and sixty dollars a month, and works all the time. And this is a high paying job, 660, that is high paying for considering everybody, this is the top of the company. You can only imagine like the lowly person in the company, how much they're making. So, and, and this is repeated everywhere. It's not like just Egypt, but I just know it because I've seen it in my own family and in the US, you know, we can say the same things. The statistics are everywhere. And it's fine if people can actually rise up and do something good for everyone and they become a billionaire. That's great. That typically means they've done something useful for the rest of us, typically. But it doesn't mean they should just be able to always do that because what's happening is the ones that are already on top are the ones that are ending up having their kids being on top, which just, that's antithetical to the concept of all men are created equal which is the, the whole concept of uh, that's what we say. And I, I had another interview where I, I just simply said, you know, you believe in all men are created equal? Sure. Okay. Are we getting closer or farther away from all men are created equal? And the answer is absolutely farther away. Okay. So there is a complete failure. Yeah. And so right. what, in your view, is the so, solution? Yes, Can you sure. give that oh, to us yes. in a nutshell? So it's basically to have... Uh, no inheritance, specifically property, 
stocks, the things that really are capitals. A capital means it's something that's going to go up in value basically without you doing too much. So stocks and um, real estate are the, the simplest example. And those things would be divided on the people so that, that one person's child does not inherit all their property. And then what those properties, the way they would be distributed would be based on your net worth. So in the US already, we have a system that says you cannot participate in certain investment unless your net worth is high, uh, a certain amount like 500,000 or a million or higher then you can participate in these investments. Basically, all I'm doing is turning that around saying, okay, if the house is 50,000, then if you're 100,000 or less, you can bid on this house. And then if you're 200, 500, 50 million, uh, you have no business trying to get a, a house that's 50,000. Uh, so that you're limiting the participation of the rich in, in the dividing of these small spoils between people. And then th that way, the things are distributed a lot more evenly so that people who have, you know, 15 pieces of uh, 15 queens on a chessboard can play against people who have 15 queens instead of going around and looking for people who are barely making it and making their life even worse, which is basically what happens 90% okay. of the time. So is, is do I understand it correctly? The basic idea is that instead of uh, individual familial inheritance where you get whatever your parents, you know, bequeath to you when they die. We'll have a system where um, everybody's bequeathing into a collective pot and then we're all inheriting a portion of what's been bequeathed into the pot. A certain amount. So the same, you know, based on whoever dies. So if the, you know, I don't want to say something bad about the owner of Microsoft, but the owner of a certain company dies, then the people who are born uh, would have a certain amount of that company so that you would get whatever, you know, typically if you take all the money in the U.S. and divide it evenly, each person would have 150,000. That's kind of the math of, of the could It's probably higher now because we were printing so much more money that last year, but whatever, whatever the concept is, you, you just take that money and you divide it evenly, evenly. That's the, the point is that when it's evenly divided, all men are created equal which is just what we're just trying to live up to our own standards there's nothing amazing about it we're just trying to live up to our own words uh but like most people we just don't see what's wrong with us we don't see our own hypocrisy because that's what happens with humans we don't see that when we have slaves we don't have all men are created equal it just that's that's just what we do uh, but once you do that you actually have a more equal race a more equal competition between the rich and the poor, between those who have IQs and those who don't, at least the least I can request from something is to play with the same chess board. You know, if I'm going to play you chess, no matter if you're smarter or not, the least we can ask is that we have the same amount of pieces. That's it. It's as simple as that. And that no one, no matter who they are, would say, yes, I prefer to get two, two pawns to start playing someone chess. If they're the smartest person, if they're the dumbest person, they will know there's something ridiculously wrong with having two pawns and the other person has all this other stuff. That's not fair, they would say. But we don't apply that to our lives, at least not well enough. All right. Wrapping up with, wasn't very well. short. <laughs>
No, that's fine. We've, I, that's important to get that out. I thought that was the central idea of the book was Good. inspiring. Good. Glad to hear it, man. I mean, you're not trying to overturn capitalism. You're just saying, look, the problem is the way wealth is handed down from generation to generation it has compounding effects. And it has bad because what happens when you have 15 queens, you don't have to be that smart to keep your wealth. So what happens is you, you are, it's easier for you to knock other people off, even though you are not the most capable. And we want the most capable to be in the best positions because, uh, you know, the idea is the most capable will do the best with the money they have. So there you go. So the both concepts are kind of losing their, their ability because you have all these people with ridiculous amount of wealth and, and no ability, just a matter of inheriting it. Yeah. Well, this is incredible, Luther, because, uh, you know, in this conversation, we've been able to move from this ancient spiritual practice to a flaw built into the structure of modern society. And so the idea is that through this ancient practice, you've been able to have an insight into how we might fix our society and thus make it more sustainable. I feel that way. Yes. Does that I, seem right? And I feel like it came because, again, because of that, because it, it opens my mind to being not not boxed in by other ideas. And, you know, of course, the books did it as well, reading so many. Uh, but I think combined, they, they did some because I don't really I don't see myself as a very capable person or smart person. Honestly, I really don't. <laughs> I'm not trying to be humble you know for no reason like i really don't think i'm all that smart too you know and and usually most people that hear about this book they're like this is the most egotistical thing i've ever heard you know <laughs> like telling everybody to change you know like that's ridiculously egoist I'm like yeah i don't i don't see it that way i get the fact that when you tell other people to change it just seems egoist but you know i think about it as watching a chess game and I, I'm, I'm just angry that some people have 15 queens and another person have two pawns and they're playing chess and the people with two pawns are told, this is it. This is the only way you can play chess. This is how chess is played. That's it. And I, I don't think there's much ego in it in, in the way I look at it. I get how you, other people see it, but that's how I see it. It's a matter of fairness again. It's a matter of just seeing a ridiculous game and saying, no, that's, that can't be it. Very good. Well, Luther, if you have any advice for anyone out there who wants to walk down the same path you're walking, what would you say to them? Uh, I think openness is a really good, you know, like we were saying earlier, I loved how you put it actually with with uh, with lowering your ego, you know, kind of the, the ego death. I think it's a very good one because that, and that's why everybody thought I was, you know, egotist, because the killing of ego does not mean the killing of standards. You know, you can love people, you cannot, you don't have to have ego, but still say, this is the standard and we should have a standard. And I think there's a big problem nowadays, and, and this is kind of a side note, but it's a big problem in society where we say, everything is relative. Don't have to worry about it. There's relative truth, relative morality, relative this, don't worry about it. I, I believe in truth. I still believe in truth. No matter how I look at the world, what is true needs to continue to be true and to have solid foundations in life that kind of 
are the bedrock of your thinking because I think th there's too much fluidity in most people's thinking that they can never come to any conclusions about anything. And I think that that harms a lot of people, honestly. Uh, so that, that's my idea is, is openness and less ego, uh, but less ego does not mean no truth. That's the biggest thing is I think people confuse the fact that you do not have an ego with the fact that there's a standard. And I don't think, think those two things are uh, against each other. They're, 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 you, know, you can have both. You can definitely have both. You can say there's a standard and you can say, I, 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 it's not my standard. It's just the standard. I, I, don't have, I don't drive any ego from it. It's just the standard. That's all. You know, so there you go. <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm getting preachy now. <laughs> no, that, that's, a, that's a definitely at minimum a peek into what formed the way you see the world. I appreciate this conversation. Thank you yeah. very much, Luther. Thank you.